Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mitchert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Nathan Thompson, Assistant Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue, along with Michael Langemeyer, who's a Professor of Ag Economics also and Associate Director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. Today, we're gonna to talk about the corn and soybean outlook in light of USDA's December crop production and world ag supply and demand estimates that were released on December 10th. Um, Before we start that though, I thought it was useful also to think a little bit about some of the other information USDA has released very recently. And they gave us their net farm income uh, forecast um, just a few days prior to the release of the WASDE report. And I don't think it was a big surprise in terms of the direction of change in terms of their net farm income forecast for 2020 but still maybe the magnitude of the change was a little bit of a surprise. They came out with a net farm income forecast of $120 billion. That's up from $85 billion. These are both expressed in deflated or 2020 dollars. And if you go back, there's only uh, two other years that were higher than the net farm income uh, estimate for 2020. And those were in 2011 and 2013. 2013, of course, was the record high net farm income level. Uh, the only other year that was really close to that was 2004, which came in at $118 billion in inflation-adjusted dollar terms. Um, and of course, uh, responsible for the big rise in net farm income this year was the big rise in government payments to farmers. Uh, their estimate of government payments to farmers uh, in 2020 was almost $47 billion. They came in at $46.5 billion. That's up from $22.8 billion in 2019. And you know, if you look at uh, the 2012 through about 2018 timeframe, um, government payments to farmers were ranging between, in inflation adjusted terms, between a, roughly $11 billion and $14 billion. So it's a huge increase, not only compared to last year, but especially when you compare it to kind of the historical average. And uh, you know, Michael, I think you took a look at government payments uh, relative in relative terms. So you looked at the percentage of farm income uh, coming from government payments, and you did a longer history than just the last few years. You went all the way back to the 1970s. You might share that with us. Yeah, before I get into that, that $46.5 billion is the largest we've had since at least 1973. I didn't go any further back than that in inflation-adjusted terms, but that it, it really stands out as an extremely large year for government payments. Uh, in in 2020, looking at government payments as a percentage of net farm income, which is really common to do in policy circles, uh, you know, 2020 does stand out as as an outlier. Uh, it's about 40 percent. It's not quite 40 percent uh, of net farm income is compo- is comprised of of government payments in 2020. But it's important to point out that we have had other years where that percentage is actually higher. Now, those years where it was actually higher were not really strong uh, net farm income years, uh, in particular 1987. And then there was three years, 1999, 2000, 2001, where the percentage of income, uh, net farm income coming from government payments was actually higher. And then we have 1983, which is really an outlier, a very low net farm income year where close to 65% of net farm income was comprised of government payments. And so even though it's, it's really large on, a, on a, uh, an absolute dollar amount, uh, in, terms of, in terms of a percentage of net farm income, there, there has been years since 1973 that have had a higher percentage of, of income coming from government payments. But as you pointed out, though, it's kind of interesting. The years when it was higher were actually pretty relatively low uh, income years are certainly much lower than this year. So yes, definitely. The, that's definitely the case. One of the interesting things about this year, it's a high income year and still a high percentage of income coming from government payments. That makes it somewhat unique in that respect. Well, let's turn our attention to the information USDA released last week. And of course, that was the updated world ag supply demand estimates. Um, and there really wasn't much change at all on the production side. They didn't change the corn production estimate. They didn't change the soybean production estimate. So corn production still came in at 14.5 billion bushels. No change from what they were estimating in November. Um, corn export forecast did not change. That was a little bit of a surprise to some folks. It still came in at 2.65 billion bushels. Uh, that's about 50% higher than our estimate for 2019, which was 1.78 billion bushels. 
Still, I think a number of people in the trade had been expecting to see USDA bump up that corn export number. They didn't do it on this December report. But I think it's useful to take a look at corn exports so far this year, and they have been significantly larger. In fact, a somewhat larger than what USDA is currently forecasting on an annual basis. Total corn exports, looking at the weekly data, uh, starting with the beginning of the crop year, which of course is the first week of September, and comparing that to the same time period last year, uh, total corn exports up 61% so far this year. And then importantly, uh, the increase in exports, if you look at the exports to China, exports to China actually account for about 85% of the increase that occurred this year versus last year. And the other interesting thing about that is if you look at uh, recent history, we traditionally don't really export corn to China. China, of course, is a huge corn producer as well as consumer, and historically has not imported corn from the U.S. at all. So the fact that they've pulled in so far this year roughly 140 million bushels is pretty significant. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as, as we go forward. But uh, so far, corn exports actually up more than what USDA has been forecasting for the year, and I think that's maybe the key point there. And I think some of our listeners might be a little curious as to, well, what's going on with respect to this increase in both corn and soybean imports uh, into China? And I think the driver there is what's going on in their animal agriculture sector. So one of the things I took a look at was uh, what's taken place with respect to China's hog sector. There's been a lot of inf information about the Chinese hog situation really for the last couple of years because of the impact of African swine fever. And I thought it was important to maybe just go back and realize um, how large the Chinese hog production sector is. So if you go back before the onset of African swine fever, uh, hog slaughter in China totaled almost 700 million head. Um, in 2019, that dropped pretty sharply as a result of African swine fever, dropped to, I think USDA's estimates, it was 544 million head. So it dropped roughly 150 million head. And in 2020, dropped again, um, dropped to 455 million head. So in the span of a couple of years, they've gone from a hog slaughter of about 700 million head to about 450 million head. So a, a huge decline in their hog slaughter sector. Um, but in the process of doing that, China is now trying to rebuild its hog sector. And as they may rebuild the hog sector, they're trying to rebuild it in a way that's quite a bit different than what it's historically been. And historically, their industry has had a large percentage of production coming out of relatively small operations um, that in, in the U.S. we'd probably characterize as almost backyard type of operation, but very small family-based operations. They're trying to commercialize their hog sector and bring it back by putting in very large hog production facilities. And in the process, USDA is forecasting that uh, their hog slaughter in 2021 will rise by 50 million head. That's a huge increase, even when you look at it in Chinese terms, in terms of their relative size of their industry. But I think maybe to bring it into scale a little bit, it's important to think about how big the U.S. industry is. And so in 2021, USDA is forecasting that hog slaughter in the U.S. will total about 134 million heads. So China is trying to increase their hog slaughter by 50 million head. Uh, that would be equivalent to the U.S. increasing hog slaughter in the ballpark of about 40 percent in one year. So that gives you an idea as to what's driving the change uh, in their uh, both corn and soybean import requirements. It's what's taken place in their animal ag sector, and it's a combination of trying to bring back numbers and at the same time change the way their industry is structured, which really, as they move to a more commercially based uh, production system, uh, really increases their need for both corn and soybean meal. And that's really the, the two drivers behind it. It's one is that increase in volume, and the second one is changing the way they, they actually produce hogs by changing those feeding rations. Um, USDA is still forecasting a modest increase in corn that'll be used to produce ethanol. So no change from their forecast last month. They were uh, at 5.05 billion bushels. That's up a little bit compared to uh, 2019, which came in at 4.85 billion bushels. Um, but I think our question going forward is, is that going to happen? I took a look at uh, uh, ethanol plant margins. This is based on the Iowa State data where they publish a, a simulation of, a, of an ethanol plant and estimate daily ethanol plant margins. 
And the margins improved significantly towards the end of October and very beginning of November. But since that time, those margins have really collapsed. Uh, in fact, uh, the most recent data from just a week or so ago um, suggests that those margins had actually slipped into the red. And of course, the last time those margins were in the red uh, was when the pandemic was really taking hold back in late March, April, and, and a little bit uh, maybe, well, by the time we got into May, we were starting to get back into the green, but uh, certainly late March and early April, uh, those margins were red. Uh, now they're red again. So as you think about it, Michael, uh, one of the concerns you got to have is, uh, are we going to be able to see ethanol production rebound with margins looking like that? Yeah, there's three concerns here. You know, Obviously, relatively low gas prices, relatively high corn prices compared to where we were just a few months ago. And then you, you on top of that, uh, the increased incidence of, of COVID-19 cases, and, and you've got to think that travel is going to slow here, and, and we're going to be below last year's, last year's ethanol uh, use for, for several weeks at least. Yeah, and in fact, I looked at uh, weekly ethanol production uh, from the Energy Information Agency. Uh, and if you go back in you know, the beginning of 2020, we were actually looking at ethanol production numbers that were above the prior year. And then by the end of March, we started dipping significantly below last year. And, and uh, in that kind of mid-April timeframe, or uh, maybe the end of April, uh, we were down almost 50% compared to the prior year. Um, ethanol production has come back substantially from those levels, but if you look at recent weeks, we've been running anywhere from about 4 or 5% uh, below a year ago to the most recent date has actually been 8% below a year ago. So that's the opposite of what USDA is forecasting. So I think the, the key point is probably USDA is anticipating a recovery in the economy, and that's going to have to happen, as you point out, Michael, I think in the last half of the marketing year, because the likelihood of seeing ethanol production rise above the year ago level between now and, say, the end of March seems very low at this point. Uh, but the spring quarter and especially the summer quarter of 2021 are still up in the air. And so if we're going to see that ethanol production number increase and corn going into ethanol actually rise above the 2019 values, it's going to have to happen in the last half of the year. So there's a little bit of optimism in the USDA forecast on that one. Um, if you look at it uh, in December versus the November numbers that USDA released, no change in the projected ending stocks at the end of the 2020 marketing year, which of course would be the end of August next uh, summer 2021. They're still forecasting a carryover of 1.7 billion bushels, that's down from 2 billion bushels in 2019 and down from 2.2 billion bushels in the 2018 marketing year. Um, if you look at that though, one of the things that's really interesting is to look at how those ending stocks forecast have changed um, throughout the course of the marketing year. And this really illustrates how difficult it is to forecast the combination of production and usage for a commodity like corn. If you go back to June, of this year, USDA was forecasting that we would likely carry over 3.3 billion bushels of corn from the 2020 marketing year into the 2021 marketing year. And those numbers came down in July and August. They were in the ballpark of about 2.7 billion bushels for those two monthly reports. Came down again in September to 2.5 billion bushels. October, roughly 2.2 billion bushels. And now here, the November and December estimates are both at about 1.7 billion bushels. And Nathan, you know, I think this kind of speaks to one of the things that you've been addressing in, in some of your research with respect to it is so difficult to forecast things like production, usage, and in turn price. That has some pretty strong implications in terms of marketing strategies, doesn't it? It does. And we'll talk about those here in a minute. And I think that part of that difficulty comes in the timing of those forecasts, right? When we're trying to figure out what certain things are gonna be. And again, I think that relates to price as well as it relates to uh, some of these production measures. Yeah, so when you think about marketing strategies, one of the things you have to recognize is no matter who you are, how good you are, it's gonna be difficult to forecast with any high degree of accuracy and your marketing strategy needs to recognize that. So we'll talk more about that a little later. Um, as you look at the corn ending stocks estimate, I think one of the keys there is the ending stock estimate as a percentage of total usage, which is the way we usually like to look at ending stocks because that allows us to look at a longer history. 
as the industry has gotten significantly larger over time, those ending stocks as a percentage of usage at the end of the 2020 marketing year are projected to be about 11% of usage. That's down from 14% for the 2019 marketing year, down from 16% in the 2018 marketing year. Um, and it's actually the tightest ending stocks going back to the 14 and 15 marketing years when we were at 13%. And um, if you go all the way back to the 2013 marketing year, we were at 9%. So one of the questions I think a lot of people have is, are we going to push that ending stocks number down even farther, meaning we might get those ending stocks down perhaps in the 10% or less range, uh, which would bring us back closer to where we were in that really tight inventory time frame of you know, 2013, 2012, et cetera. Um, what's your opinion on that, Michael? I think there's certainly a chance, and I think the key the key things to look at is, is things you've already talked about. Uh, what's the demand for ethanol, and and, and uh, uh, really hard to predict exports. Yeah, and, uh, if the wild cards exports are stronger than what uh, what USDA is currently indicating, we could we could drop down to that ten percent or below. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest wild card is what's taking place on the export side. There's a little, um, maybe a little more wiggle room on the ethanol production estimates, but. Certainly, the exports continue to be a wild card. If exports are significantly larger than USDA is currently forecasting, the risk is that we could bring it down below 11%. The other factor is there's really one more opportunity to make a, a change in the 2020 yield estimates, and that'll be coming up after the first of the year. So USDA will make one more revision, potentially. And I know there's a number of people in the trade that think they could pull the yield back yet uh, further. And so that's maybe the other factor that could cause that uh, that percentage of uh, ending stocks as a percentage of usage to come down yet again. So USDA didn't change their marketing year average price forecast. Of course, they rose it or it increased two months in a row coming into this report. So no change in December relative to November. It came in at $4 a bushel. But I think it's important to note that back in 2013, remember that was the year when the ending stocks as a percentage of usage was 9%. The marketing year average was 446. And I think that's probably the number the trade's going to be looking at in terms of a potential. If we see those ending stocks tighten further, uh, that becomes a target in terms of seeing some additional strength in these corn prices. So uh, you can look at that as a, as a target or maybe a ceiling, depending on your perspective. But nevertheless, it suggests that if we see any, any additional tightening, there is the potential to see some further increase in that, in that marketing year average. So Nathan, you've taken a look at uh, what people should be thinking about with respect to storage and, and really kind of trying to address that question about are there some storage opportunities for corn? Yeah, so there's a couple different ways to think about this. And I, I think one, one way to kind of start this thought process of some potential storage opportunities are looking at current cash forward contract bids. And I just looked at uh, one particular elevator here in, in central Indiana and uh Basically, you know, comparing those current bids that are available to the producer kind of throughout the rest of the uh, crop marketing year with kind of what I call an implied break-even price, right? So basically, you know, the price today plus uh, storage costs and opportunity costs that the farmer is going to incur by having stored that grain. So just for simplicity, we make some assumptions about those costs. So we assume a one cent per bushel per month. Uh, cost of on-farm storage, and then a 6% uh, APR, uh, opportunity cost on uh, having not sold that grain uh, and having the, the potential to, to pay down some debt. Uh, and so we, we just assume a 6% APR. An individual farm may be above or below that. But the, the main thing to, to point out when we're comparing this kind of implied break-even price with <coughs> those current forward contract bids is that the implied break-even is uh, consistently above what they're bidding um, currently, meaning that they're really uh, not providing, those forward contract bids are not providing a lot of incentive to store. And again, there, there's kind of two main underlying um, components that are making up those, those forward contract bids, and that is futures price spreads. So how much are more, those more deferred futures contracts trading for relative to the nearby? and then the basis. And so if we kind of dig into those two components, we can maybe get a little better idea of what opportunities are out there if you're wanting to store, but maybe wanting to avoid these, um, these what don't appear to be very favorable uh, forward contract bids. Yeah, so, so you, go ahead. 
One of the things I think is really interesting, Nathan, as you think about it, uh, is how much higher you really need to be in terms of the price you lock in as you get out to, say, June or July, even at relatively low interest rates. Yeah, so, you know, um, we're, we're looking at uh, opportunities to deliver grain today somewhere around $4.18 at this particular um, elevator. And say you were going to store out until May, that implied break-even would mean you need to sell that grain for $4.33 a bushel, at least, to just cover those, those storage costs and that opportunity cost, right? So, uh, you know, th- those costs accumulate quickly. And it's really kind of just a simple exercise, but a really important one as you're thinking about evaluating these sorts of storage decisions, evaluating these, these uh, forward contract bids, you know, what do I need to actually sell this grain for to offset some of those costs? Yeah. And, and the other thing I think to think about is it depends a lot on the individual farm because you assumed a 6% opportunity cost, which would be a traditional um commercial farming operation where a significant portion of the operating capital is being borrowed. But that's not true for everybody, right? Some people's opportunity costs might be quite a bit lower than that. So it's important to think about what your alternative investment is, uh, which is something I think a lot of people maybe don't think about, at least not routinely. So, Nathan and Jim, another point to to kind of keep in mind here is a lot of people have a break even to cover all costs, including opportunity costs of $4 or below. And and so and so I think that's also also very important to point out. You're talking about some forward contract prices here that are very attractive relative to a lot of people's break even. Yeah, I agree. I think that's something really important to keep in mind, especially as we move forward with this discussion of what opportunities may actually be on the table here. So let's dig in then just a little bit deeper. So moving on from the forward contract bids, uh, I want to talk just for a second about what the the uh, current structure of the futures market is in terms of those spreads between uh, nearby and, and more deferred futures contracts. So for corn, there is very, very small amounts of positive carry in the market right now. Um, it, you know, But relatively speaking, um, compared to where, where those spreads would be uh, at this time of year, the market is very flat. And again, it's this idea that Really, the market isn't providing us a lot of incentive to store. So those, those uh, spreads between uh, futures contracts uh, in the corn market are currently very flat relative to what we would expect them to be this time of year. Yeah, Nathan, I think uh, you've looked at that. Historically, what would be kind of an average spread between, for example, the DEES contract and, and maybe next July? Yeah, so uh, typically this time of year, as we're kind of approaching the expiration of the, the December contract, we would expect the, the spread between December and July futures to be somewhere in the ballpark of 20, 25 cents, maybe even 30 cents. Uh, and, you know, right now it's in the, you know, five, five to 10 cent range. Yeah, a lot of days been in that five or six cent range, right? So yeah, a very, very narrow compared to, to uh, history. So you've taken a look at some some history on a more specific basis using the crop basis tools. Why don't you share some of those results with us? Yeah. So the other kind of big component there to think about is 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 basis. So what is basis going to do as we think about kind of uh, as as we progress through the marketing year? And so for corn, you know, most most of the regions in in the eastern corn belt that we track in the crop basis tool, which is on the the Center for Commercial Agriculture's homepage are currently running pretty close to that three-year average. So the the three-year historical average is kind of what we recommend as we think about uh, forecasting or building an expectation of what basis is going to be. In some regions, it's been slightly above that three-year average, but, you know, not not a whole lot. So somewhere, you know, at average or uh, slightly above um, for, for, again, most of the, the regions that we track in the Eastern Corn Belt. But what I think is useful to think about as we think about some of what we talked about with the supply and the, the demand commission conditions that you guys just went through is what, you know, what could basis do as we look forward? And so one of the really important things to keep in mind is we've done a, a quite a bit of research on forecasting basis and, and how to best forecast and how the accuracy of those forecasts change over time is as we look out into the future, um, what's happening right now is not um, as important as, as some might think. So, for example, if you're in a region where 
uh, basis is currently 10 cents above uh, that three-year average, you might expect that as we get out, let's just say uh, into the first week of July, that that 10 cent premium would persist. But the research that we've done says that, you know, at that long of a forecast horizon, right, forecasting basis that far into the future, that, that any premium that you're seeing now above that historical average would likely erode by uh, the time that you got there. What I think is, is interesting, though, is we need to think about kind of what's happening in this particular year, right? So uh, we'll talk about soybeans in a minute where it's maybe a little more clear. But even with corn, you know, you showed uh, how or you talked about how, you know, we've uh, seen that um, ending stocks number coming down for several months in a row now. Uh, and what that tightening has done as it relates to kind of marketing opportunities. And obviously, we've had, you know, uh, big rallies in futures here uh, throughout the fall. But then I think the question is, you know, what, what do we expect to happen as we look out into the storage season, maybe into the late spring, early summer months? And so one way to look at that, so you kind of alluded to when you looked at your, your uh, stocks to use is some years that might be comparable to what we're currently experiencing. And so I kind of looked at a couple of years um, to kind of give an idea or maybe a little bit of a range of what we might expect to see as it relates to basis. Um in a years that might be deemed comparable to the, the current conditions, right? And so one of the years, I just went back to last year. So last year was probably not a great example of a, a tight stock situation, but it was a tight production year as, as it relates to some of the production issues that we had. Um, and so what we saw was that, you know, basis uh, was um, uh, relatively strong throughout the entire marketing year. Um, but then what happens is we see kind of the COVID-19 uh, effect there in, in, in second week of March or so, and, and basis really tailed off. A lot of that had to do with ethanol demand. And so when we get out there into July, um, you know, uh, nearby basis is only about a positive one cent, which is actually less than the positive three cents that we would forecast based on the historical average. So again, this is just for kind of full transparency here that, you know, if we're going to compare it to that year, we didn't, we didn't really see a whole lot of um, uh, upside there late in the storage season uh, last year. But again, we have to interpret that within the uh, confines of what was actually happening. So if we take a look at another year, maybe go back a few years, uh, you know, you mentioned the 2012-2013 year as a year where, you know, uh, stocks to use were the lowest that they've been in the last several years. We're not anywhere near that range currently, but again, we talked about the potential for that stocks to use to be below 10% for corn, depending uh, on, again, what happens in the January report. But what's interesting to look at is when, when you look at um, what that basis number is the first week of July in that 2012-2013 crop year, it's a positive $1.20, right? So we're talking, you know, huge swing, a huge kind of uh, bump in basis there late in the marketing year. And really, you know, what happens is we get into these uh, potentially tight stock years and, um, you know, the, the incentives are for folks to deliver grain to market early. So we have flat futures carry like we talked about, we currently have um, sometimes relatively strong basis situations. But, you know, as we get out later into the crop marketing year and there's folks that need grain, there are potentially, you know, really, really big opportunities um, for pop and basis uh, to increase that potential cash price opportunity. Now, this is a big risk, right? And the other big component to think about as you're looking at this is uh, the research that we've done as we think about forecasting basis the ability to forecast basis becomes much less accurate as we get further out into the crop marketing year. Uh, and so as, as I'm using these examples from the first week of July as kind of this comparison across some uh, comparable years, you know, basis can go one way or the other. And I guess the, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is if you're trying to maybe look at what some of the upside potential might be, these would be a useful way to do that but realize that the accuracy of being able to forecast this is very, very difficult. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, and you know, if you think about it, I think your research suggests uh, uh, that it becomes very difficult to forecast basis once you get past, oh, late May, early June timeframe, I think for corn and for soybeans, it was maybe a little bit later in the year than that, but not too much. 
And as you get into that summertime frame, what's really going on here, and you have to remember what basis is, basis reflects local supply and demand conditions, right? And what happens is, uh, and you were looking at that 2012, 2013 crop year when we saw that tremendous pop in basis towards the end of uh, uh, July and into the month of August, and actually extending all the way into the beginning of September. What was going on there was very inelastic demand in some of those local markets uh, and a very tight supply situation, right? Some, some buyers have extremely inelastic demand at the end of that marketing year, and they have to keep going no matter what. So, so think of a hog operation, for example, that's caught short on corn in uh, that late July, August timeframe. They're not going to liquidate the herd instantaneously. They're going to have to continue buying corn. They're going to pay up. Um, in Indiana, ethanol plants were one of those that had a very inelastic demand and they wanted to keep going and they simply had to up their bids to keep the supply coming in. So really, that's what, that's what makes it so hard to forecast, right? You've got inelastic supply, inelastic demand, and small shifts can give you big changes in the value of the basis, right? And so um, it creates an opportunity in terms of improving profitability if you're willing to speculate on that. Uh, but do so recognizing that there is a significant risk and it's not something that's, that can be forecast with a high degree of reliability. But having said that, the years when it might pay off tend to be those years when the carryover is relatively tight, right? So you exactly. take a look at another one, right? You took a look at uh, what, the 2011, 2012 crop year? That's right. 11-12 was another one that I picked to kind of look at based on the, the uh, stock situation and again, you know, we see as we get out uh, into that first week of July timeframe that, um, you know, basis was positive 37 uh, cents, positive 37 cents. So not quite as big as what we saw uh, in 12 and 13, uh, but still relative to a normal basis level, extremely, you know, strong basis. Um, and, and again, an opportunity for somebody to potentially uh, take advantage of uh, a big pop in basis in a year where, you know, we get out late into the crop marketing year and, and there's some uh, some demand for, for a crop. And so, you know, again, just, just putting into to context here a little bit, I, I think that it's important to uh, point out this idea that uh, very risky uh, to kind of try to forecast these things, you know, very uh, difficult to forecast basis this time of year. Um, so, you know, what we're talking about is, is somewhat risky. Um, the other thing to point out is, is this, uh, we, we've kind of been advocating recently in some of our marketing workshops, the idea of kind of a portfolio of strategies, right? So uh, I certainly wouldn't be suggesting that, you know, someone be going all in on a strategy where you're hoping for this sort of pop in basis late in the year, right? This might be something uh, that you want to allocate a portion of that marketing portfolio towards this kind of speculative on-price corn storage strategy. Uh, and again, we're basing that on the fact that we're looking at what's going on this year, saying that this could this could be a year um, where we see some of these opportunities late in the season. But again, that's a risky strategy. You got to keep in, in mind, you know, what your risk tolerance is, what your farm's kind of ability to bear that risk is. And then the other thing is, and Michael brought this up earlier, you know, there are, there are opportunities for farms to be selling grain at very profitable levels currently, right? And so, you know, passing those opportunities up, especially if you're a farm that has some liquidity concerns, you know, you, you want to be very careful how you kind of work this sort of uh, strategy into a portfolio, keeping in mind all of these things. Yeah, bottom line, we don't recommend uh, committing a high percentage of your crop to this kind of a strategy even though it has some potential to generate a pretty positive return. The other uh, point that I wanted to make, uh, Nathan, is the research that you were just talking about, uh, our listeners could go to the Center for Commercial Agriculture website and use the crop basis tool and replicate exactly what you did, right? Because on the website, the tool allows you to compare current year basis. It's always going to plot the current year's basis. But you can go back and plot those individual years and say, you know, I, I want to see how this year compares to that 2011, 2012, or uh, maybe the 2012, 2013. Uh, see how basis compares and what the basis pattern was for that particular year. And um, it's easy to do. It's just a couple of clicks with a mouse. 
And uh, that's essentially what you did here using that database. So that database is really available as a tool for people to think about uh, scenarios like this and uh, makes it pretty easy to do. So if our listeners haven't tapped into that uh, and haven't played around with that, I'd encourage you to do so. It's, it's easy to do and it's pretty informative. So, all right, let's turn our attention to soybeans. Um, as I mentioned earlier, soybean uh, production estimate from USDA was unchanged, 4.17 billion bushels. That's the same number they came up with last month. Of course, last month was down from the prior months. Um, they're still forecasting the same exports, uh, 2.2 billion bushels. That's up from 1.68 billion bushels in 2019. Um, that's about a 31% increase relative to the 2019 crop year. Um, I went back and looked at the weekly data so far uh, in this 2020 crop marketing year. So going back to September 1, uh, so far soybean exports, total exports of this year are up 71% compared to the same number of weeks uh, last year. So that's looking at roughly the first 14 weeks of the, of the marketing year. Um, if you look at it, the rise in exports to China alone accounts for essentially all of that increase that's taken place this year. Uh, so that just tells you how important what's going on in China is relative to both the soybean and the corn outlook, right? Those exports to China are really a significant driver here. Um, and a little like corn, I went back and looked at USDA's estimates of um, projected carryovers from the 2020 crop year into the 2021 crop year. So I went and back and looked at those WASDE reports starting in June of this year. And of course, uh, as recently as August, USDA was forecasting 610 million bushel carryover from the 2020 marketing year into 2021. They reduced that in September to 460 million bushels. In October, they dropped it again to 290 million bushels. In November, they dropped it to 190 million bushels. And in December, they dropped it again. It was a small drop, but nevertheless, it did decline to 175 million bushels. And that occurred because they bumped up the crush estimate, the US crush or domestic crush estimate by 15 million bushels compared to what they forecast a month earlier. So that uh, change in carryover has really been even more dramatic than what's taken place in corn compared to August, which isn't very long ago. Uh, they've dropped that projected carryover into the 2021 marketing year by 71%. Um, and again, people are wondering if it could tighten even further, right? So uh, I, there was no change in the yield estimate, no change in the production estimate for the 2020 marketing year on this December report. Some people, again, think that perhaps we could see a revision in yields come up on that after the first of the year when USDA makes its final estimate. Um, and that would tighten those ending stocks even further. But still, when you look at the soybean ending stocks, they are currently projected to fall below 4%, you know, roughly 3.9%. That's down from 13% last year and 23% two years ago. Of course, that was severely affected by the trade dispute with China. If you go back uh, and look at the historical numbers, uh, that puts us the tightest ending stocks we've seen since the 2013 marketing year and actually puts us a little bit below where we were in both 14 and 15. In 14 and 15, we were at about 5% carryover. So we're below that. Um, in 2013, we were, uh, I think, closer to about 3%. So not quite as tight as in 2013, but still a very tight ending stock situation in soybeans. Um, USDA did bump up the soybean price forecast. So this is a little different than in corn. They boosted the soybean marketing year average forecast by 15 cents a bushel. So it went from 1040 last month. Their current forecast is 1055. And again, that's the highest marketing year average since the 2013 crop year when the average uh, was $13. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea as to what the target might be if we see those ending stocks tighten even further. Uh, some people are going to be looking at that as a target. Some people may be looking at that as a ceiling, but nevertheless, it suggests uh, some additional strength might be possible there if the ending stocks tightens even further. And then I think it's important to remember that it's not just in the U.S. that stocks are tightening. World stocks are also being drawn down. If you look at world stocks in corn, uh, the last couple of years, we were, uh, let's see, all the way back to 2016, we were at 33% uh, carryover into the upcoming marketing year. 
that's been declining every year since then. And the current estimate is for that to be about 25% at the end of the 2020 marketing year going into the 2021 marketing year. On the soybean side, just a couple of years ago, and this was influenced obviously by the trade dispute with China, but the world stocks rose to 33%. I guess the other factor I want to mention is a big factor was what took place with respect to African swine fever in China, as well as the trade dispute. But those world stocks were at 33%. Uh, here, they're coming down pretty sharply down to 23%. If you look back in history, again, that puts those world stocks estimates a little higher than they were in that 2013 marketing year, but not a lot. Uh, on the soybean side, it puts us very close to where the world stocks were in the 2013 marketing year. So, um, And I think it's important to think about what that means when world stock levels are, are declining like that. You know, what, especially when you're doing it for several years in a row, what that means is we're consuming on a worldwide basis more than we're producing. So that's pretty significant as you think about it from a longer term perspective. So, Nathan, you've taken a look at what I think is probably on the minds of a lot of our listeners. What are the storage opportunities for soybeans? What should we be doing here with the market from a marketing standpoint? Yeah, so kind of walking through a, a similar sequence of, of things to think about, starting off with, uh, again, just uh, a set of Ford contract bids uh, for uh, Elevator here in central Indiana uh, and comparing those with these kind of implied uh, break-even prices based on assumed um, storage costs. So again, that on-farm storage cost of, of one cent per bushel month and assumed 6% APR. And again, you know, the, the bids that they currently have out, you know, through the rest of the marketing year are well below those implied break-evens. Again, indicating that, you know, the incentive to, um, you know, uh, store that grain beyond today for one of these forward contract bids is not really high. You're not going to even cover the cost that we've assumed here. And again, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Jim, if your farm has a different cost structure than what we are kind of uh, assuming here, obviously that might be different, but those bids... Uh, that they're currently have out are very flat, uh, meaning that they're not really offering a lot of incentive for you to store that grain beyond uh, beyond today. <clears throat> and so again, kind of underlying that, there's there's two important things. That's the carry in the futures market and the basis. Uh, and so we can take a take a look about uh, what what that currently looks like. And so similar to corn, you know, there is a small amount of positive carry in the futures uh, market, but but not a whole lot relative to what we would typically see this time of year. Um, so, um, you know, uh, currently January to March, you know, we're looking at again somewhere around a five percent carry. Uh, excuse me, five cent carry, uh, and very flat after that. Uh, typically, this time of year for soybeans, you know, we would be looking at carry uh, more along the lines of again thirty cents or something like that. It's been interesting because there, as you point out, when uh, recently it's been pretty flat, uh, even on those distant deferreds. But you know, earlier we were actually looking at at an inverted market relationship with those distant deferred contracts priced at a discount to the nearbys, which is really the the kind of price scenario that you tend to see in severe drought years, right? The short crop production years, and this was really not, even though USDA did pull back the estimates on the last uh, on the November report in particular. Um, kind of hard to characterize this as a real short crop year. So it's a little bit of a surprising scenario in terms of the pricing, given that we didn't really have a shortfall in production in, in the U.S. this year. Yeah, so then the other kind of component here is the basis side of things. And so um, just kind of thinking about, you know, what what current the current basis situation is, you know, again, across most of the regions that we track here in the Eastern Corn Belt, you know, we're looking at basis somewhere between 10 and 30 cents stronger than the two-year average. So the two-year average, two-year historical average is kind of what we we recommend as the baseline for, for those uh, soybean basis forecasts. And so, uh, again, going back to kind of some of the, the supply and demand commission conditions that we talked through, there, there's uh, a strong <clears throat> incentive to get uh, soybeans purchased uh, as it kind of translates to, to higher basis and stronger prices. Um, but as we kind of look again forward and thinking about, you know, what the opportunities uh, on the basis side of things might be throughout the rest of the marketing year, we can go through a similar exercise of kind of comparing uh, that historical three-year average uh, of basis 
later in the marketing year with some years that we might deem somewhat comparable to what we're seeing this year, in particular in kind of a stocks to use ratio uh, type of thing. And so, you know, the the historical three-year average, or excuse me, two-year average currently out there in the first week of July would be uh, 17 cents under, a minus 17 cents. And then the first year that I compared that to um, was the 14-15 crop year. So again, that we're going to we're going to work at 1415 and work our way backwards. Uh, and so, again, we were looking at similar stocks to use um, ratios to what we're looking at now. So, again, I think this year we were at 3.9% going back to that 1415 timeframe. Again, I think we're in that ballpark of, of four or five percent. Uh, and so looking at basis the first week of July back in the 2014, 2015 crop year, uh, it was uh, p- positive five. And again, comparing that with the, the minus 17 that the two-year historical average would currently be uh, forecasting or, or, or building an expectation of. And then it's also interesting if you look beyond that July 1st timeframe. So again, getting even later into the summer months, uh, again, when the research that we've done says that, you know, the accuracy of those basis forecast declines, you know, a lot, uh, you're looking at at basis that was... Um, you know, plus 80 cents or so uh, if you get a little further out into the summer months there. And so, again, uh, maybe that pop in basis coming a little bit later than than what we saw for corn. But still, you know, uh, there is upside potential in a year where we have, um, you know, put the potential for low carryovers and, and how that translates in, into uh, into basis opportunities. I think one of the things to remember, and this applies to both corn and soybeans, is basis reflects that local supply demand situation. So those pops and basis we're showing are really dependent on the fact that there's some buyers in that local area that have pretty inelastic demand, meaning they had to keep buying the product to keep whatever it is what they were doing, whether it was feeding or crushing uh, or exporting, uh, they needed to buy the product to keep keep their business going. So that means, you know, those opportunities aren't going to be reflected everywhere. They're going to be somewhat location specific. And so it's important to think about basis in the part of the world where you live. And of course, one of the cool things about the crop basis tool is it does offer regional basis information. I think, Nathan, you've got data on the tool for separated by crop reporting districts. There's nine of those districts in Indiana, and you've got the same kind of information for Illinois and Michigan and Ohio. So it's important to look at your local region, know what's going on in your local region and see what's happened in that, that particular uh, part of the world where you uh, live and operate, um, not just look at some longer, uh, broader based average with respect to basis, right? That's exactly right. And kind of my next example here is a really good example of that. And so, um, you know, your point is, you know, when and where these sorts of kind of uh, uh, pops and bases are going to happen are kind of difficult to predict, but you need to kind of use the information that you have access to. Part of the information that we have this year is this uh, carryover situation that we've discussed. And the other thing is the geographic component. So where where might these happen? And so again, being cognizant of, of kind of your region, the local supply and demand conditions. And so uh, looking at the 2013-2014 crop year as another kind of example or year to compare to, um, you know, again, the current two-year average has basis uh, for soybeans. Uh, again, in central Indiana is the, the region that I'm currently using uh, at 17 under, minus 17. If we go to the 13-14 crop year, which again was, was a year where we had a, a relatively st- tight stocks to use, similar to, to where we're currently at, uh, basis that first week in, in July was uh, plus 71. Uh, and then, uh, again, if you look even beyond that later into the, the summer months there, first week in August, you know, we're looking at basis of, uh, you know, plus $1.50 or so. And again, to your point about these regional differences, um, we, we were talking about it earlier, um, you know, what was going on in that 13, 14 crop year. We, we looked a little closer at Southeast Indiana in particular uh, as potentially a, a kind of uh, maybe export driven river market. And that, that first week of August, where in central Indiana, we're looking at $1.50, I think it was almost $2 uh, positive basis there uh, that first week in August in the 2013-2014 crop year. So again, th- these effects, uh, these potential uh, differences in basis can be felt uh, different regionally based on the local supply and local demand. 
And so again, just kind of one last year to compare to. Uh, we went back one more year looking at the 2012-2013 crop year. Again, similar uh, tight stocks to use. Uh, and looking at that relative comparison of the first week in July, uh, we have uh, in central Indiana positive dollar uh, twelve basis. So again, the purpose of kind of walking through those is, is really just to give you some perspective or maybe a range on potential upside of what the current stocks to use, what the current carryover situation could mean uh, for basis as we look further out into the current marketing year. Again, very, very much uh, has some risk to it. Risk has upside potential. That's why we're making the point that that these years have kind of these potential for pops and basis, but also, you know, there, there would be downside risk associated with this sort of uh, speculative strategy. Uh, and so you got to really have to take that into consideration. I think one thing that maybe is, is interesting or important to point out as it relates to kind of uh, some research that I did with a graduate student a few years ago is this idea of comparing speculative returns to storage or, you know, storing grain on price, putting in the bin in the fall and forgetting about it until, until you sell it. So comparing that strategy for corn versus soybeans, uh, there tended to be a lot more opportunities for positive large positive speculative returns to storage for soybeans and corn. And so, you know, from a uh, uh, frequency point of view, you know, how often do we see these large uh, potential storage return opportunities? Uh, soybeans certainly performed uh, better in that sense, more frequently with these kind of large positive returns to storage. And so, again, uh, just trying to interpret the current situation through the lens of some historical examples, with the caveat of, you know, how does this fit in as a, a kind of portion of that overall marketing portfolio? Yeah, that's a good point, Nathan. As you think about it, too, um, with the very tight supply situation, the tight carryover situation in soybeans already, right, 3.9%. Uh, you, you looked at a couple of years there where actually the carryover was about 5%. Um, we were less than that in the 2012, 2013 timeframe, but, you know, we're already in a tight supply situation and, and that suggests uh, there's a good chance of seeing some buyers get into a situation where they really need to buy the product towards the end of the marketing year. And that's, that's what these pops and basis actually suggest. Um, and, you know, as you think about it, um, you know, if you want to allocate your, your crop sales and think about, well, do I want to store corn or soybeans or do I want to favor one or the other? This would appear to be a year that would favor soybean storage, right, over corn. And that's not to say that we don't think there's some potential for corn in terms of seeing a pop in basis later in the year. But the odds of that happening, uh, based on two things, one, uh, the carryover being pretty tight on soybeans, relatively tighter than corn. And then secondly, just the history, right? And when you looked at 30 plus years of data, um, the odds were higher of, of seeing one of these pops show up for that um, unhedged storage of, of soybeans and on corn. So um, some potential there, but then I think it's important to remember what you said earlier about the portfolio, right? Don't get too carried away, but this does look like a year when there's good potential for those unhedged returns for both corn and soybeans, a little bit more on the soybean side than on the corn side, but um, you know, think about what level of risk you can tolerate. Uh, and don't forget about the fact that current prices still look pretty profitable, right? And I guess the other factor we haven't really mentioned today, but but it's kind of the uh, the elephant in the room, and that is what's taking place in South America. And it's a little bit early to say too much about it. There's been a fair amount of speculation in the press uh, and to some extent the futures market about uh, dry conditions in South America. That's going to be important if it carries over past the 1st of January, right? Because it could start to really impact their production levels. Um, and that's going to be key going forward in terms of what happens at this worldwide supply situation. So that's the other factor. But it's a little early to get too excited about that. But it's certainly one that's kind of on the horizon and one that's in the back of a lot of people's minds at, at this point in time. So with that, Michael, you've taken a look at the farm income situation based on the uh, uh, simulation farm that you maintain that's based on a kind of a West Central Indiana situation. Yes, let's let's talk a little bit about net farm income per acre in 2020, and and talk about the prospects might look like for for 2021. Well, first of all, when you when you look at accrual net farm income uh, for 2020, you're looking at income that was received after the first of the year for the 19 crop 
as well as the portion of the 20 crop that was sold in, in, in 2020. And I essentially assume for this for this uh, uh, case farm that 50% of the crop is sold, uh, you know, sold uh, before the first of the year and 50% is sold after the first of the year. And so looking at that, you know, with that caveat, uh, the net farm income in 2020 is the strongest we've seen since 2013. In fact, it's higher than what we saw in 2013. Uh, a chunk of that is due to the government payments, but also a, a big chunk of that is due to the, the relatively high prices that we've had uh, in, in the fall of, of 2020 going into the winter of 2020. Uh, as you look into 2021, uh, we're, we're not expecting government payments to be very large. In fact, I think they'll be close to zero. Uh, unless some, unless we have an ad hoc payment or something like that, uh, the, the relatively strong um, corn and soybean prices projected for the rest of this marketing year uh, translates into low ARC County and PLC prices. Um, and when and when you start looking at the 21 crop, uh, currently uh, soybean prices look quite a bit lower uh, for the 21 crop. Uh, looking at November uh, 21 futures compared to current prices, and also corn prices are slightly lower. And so that's going to take 2021 20, uh, net farm income uh, certainly below uh, 2020 and probably more similar to what we saw in 2018 and 2019. Good point. So you also took a look at what people should do in terms of their financial situation with respect to repaying debt versus making additional investments in their farming operation. Yeah, the strong net farm income translates into uh, a, you know, a lot of farms having the ability to, to clearly cover debt, debt payments, term debt payments, and having some money left over. And so the question always becomes, uh, what, what's the prudent thing to do with the money that's left over? And I think certainly looking at, uh, looking at replacing machinery and equipment, uh, quite a few farms have not been able to do that for several years or haven't been able to do that to a very large extent. Uh, for the last several years, simply because the cash flow was not there. And so that's certainly a consideration. But don't forget uh, that, in, in, at least in, in quite a few cases, there's a need to improve liquidity. We've really drawn down liquidity substantially on average and, and across most farms um, in, in 2013 to 2019. And so this might be the year uh, to, to improve that, improve liquidity. And if then, and once liquidity is pretty solid, uh, then perhaps looking at replacing some machinery and equipment. Yeah, and I su suspect for uh, tax reasons, there's going to be some interest in uh, replacing some machinery and equipment, as well as the fact that a number of people probably have held back on those capital expenditures in recent years. So depending on your individual situation, this might be a good opportunity to do that. I suspect uh, uh, there's plenty of uh, machinery dealers uh, uh, encouraging folks to look at that pretty carefully right now, right? Yeah, you certainly hit the nail on the head there. I mean, the, the strong cash flow is going to translate into and in, into uh, uh, more use of, of tax planning techniques, such as section section one seventy nine and bonus uh, bonus depreciation. The fact that we just haven't replaced very much machinery uh, for the last five or six years, both of those are going to translate uh, into more interest in buying machinery. So one of the things that this could lead to is this, uh, so maybe some upward pressure on uh, cash rental rates. Have you taken a look at that, Michael? Yeah, now, now to take a look at this situation, I'm, going, I'm not going to use net, net, net farm income per acre. I'm going to use net return to land. And that's an entirely different critter uh, than net farm income. Net farm income is a cruel measure. What I'm trying to do with net return to land is I'm trying to look at all uh, all revenue and all costs except for land costs. And so no cash rent on land, no opportunity costs on land. And, and the reason I do this is net return to land can be directly compared to cash rent. If cash rent is higher than net return to land, that translates into some possible downward pressure on cash rent and vice versa. If net return to land is relatively strong uh, compared to cash rent, we're looking at upward pressure. Uh, well, to say the least here, um, the 2021 or the 2020 net return to land is, is $290 or something very close to that uh, compared to a, uh, an average cash rental rate for average productivity land in West Central Indiana of approximately 250 And so obviously net return to land is relatively strong this year compared to, uh, uh, compared to cash rent. That's going to mean upward pressure on cash rents for at least 2021. It's too early to really try to figure out what's going to happen uh, in 2022 and beyond. 
But certainly for 2021, we're looking at some upward pressure on cash rental rates. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, that parallels the information we discovered on some recent uh, ag economy barometer surveys. When we asked people in September what they thought was going to happen to cash rental rates in 2021, very few people said they thought cash rental rates would go up. When we repeated that in October, I think four out of 10 of the people in our survey said that they thought we'd see higher cash rental rates in 2021. And I think your data supports that. In fact, um, we've got that question on the current barometer. It'll be interesting to see what those results uh, indicate. I'd suspect it'll be stronger than what we saw in October. What do you think? This has been a particularly difficult year to forecast net return to land. Uh, in, in an earlier webinar, I, probably June or July, we were looking at net return to land of $100 or lower. Right now, we're looking at net return to land of $290. And so when things change that fast, you, you expect the situation to go from maybe some downward pressure on cash rent, some up, upward pressure on cash rent. Another, let's talk a little bit more about this downward pressure that we've seen since 2014 and try to figure out whether that trend, that trend in downward pressure from the 2014 peak uh, is likely to continue even past 2021. And so, uh, and so one way is to think about that is to look at 10-year averages rather than just a single year like 2020. And one of the things that's really interesting to me, if you look at the 10-year average cash rent and compare it to the 10-year average of net return to land, you know, in 2012, 2013, we were looking at cash, the 10-year average cash rent that was quite a bit higher than the 10-year average of net return to land. That's no longer the situation. Uh, when I when I redid this using 2020 data, obviously the uh, Net return to land is still a projection, but when I use 2020 data, I'm, I'm seeing that we're much closer to equilibrium. Uh, the the 10-year average cash rent is very similar to the 10-year average net return to land, and so these days of downward pressure, which occurred uh, some from 2014 to 2019, could be over. Uh, and so we could see this rise in 2021, and then maybe at least some stability past 2021. And so I just don't see, you know, looking out, uh, looking out a, a year, two years, three years, uh, a situation, uh, at least right now, where we're seeing some downward pressure on cash rent. Uh, the final thing I want to talk about is, is looking at uh, the relative profitability of corn and soybeans. And from about 2013 to, to 2018, uh, soybeans definitely had an advantage. We talked about earlier some of the reasons why that was the case. We had very tight, tight uh, uh, um, stocks to use for soybeans back in 2013, 2014, 2015. And so, and so uh, that translated to some relatively high soybean prices compared to corn and some pretty strong, uh, pretty strong signals to increase uh, soybean acreage to, through 2018. Uh, and then we saw the, the trade war with China occurring and we had a drop in, in soybean acreage. And so 2019, uh, on this case form at least, uh, corn was slightly more profitable than soybeans. In 2020, uh, soybeans were more profitable to the tune of at least $50 an acre. Uh, and and that 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 projection could increase a little bit because I, you know, we're still uh, still you know still getting information for 2020. Obviously, uh, looking at 2021, uh, they're, they're more similar similar than they have been uh, for a while in terms of the corn versus uh, soybean profitability. But there's still a slight advantage to soybeans, and so that leads me to believe, just like previous year, the previous. Three, three or four years in Indiana, we're probably looking at at least 50% of uh, corn and soybean acres going to soybeans. I, I don't think we're going to see a lot of second year soybeans, but certainly we're going to see a situation where uh, there's continued pressure uh, to, to plant quite a bit of soybeans in Indiana. And uh, you look across the corn belt and I, 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 see, no, I, I see no way that we're not going to see an increase in acreage. Uh, for soybeans. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be uh, in Indiana, but certainly as you move west in the Corn Belt, I think there's going to be strong uh, signals uh, to increase soybean acreage above what we saw last year. Yeah, I think the trade is probably expecting, um, and USDA as, as well, indicating that we're probably going to see soybean acreage approach 90 million acres uh, in 2021. So that'd be an increase of over 6 million acres and I think your uh, your chart that you've kind of generated with respect to looking at that corn versus soybeans uh, returns 
uh, would support that idea. In fact, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. That's something uh, both the trade and farmers are going to look at very carefully for the rest of this winter, right, as people formulate their final planning decisions for the 2021 crop it, it, year. And it is the reason I said it could be different for the eastern Corn Belt, this would be Indiana and Ohio, uh, is what I'm calling the eastern Corn Belt, is, is we typically have some second year soybeans and we have for we have for the last three or four years. And so it's a different situation in Indiana uh, in Ohio when you're when you're increasing the amount of second year soybeans, which is probably somewhat limited uh, your ability to do that in some areas compared to Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, uh, and, and Minnesota, where you're looking at taking some of those continuous corn acres uh, and planting more soybeans, you know, planting more soybeans than the corn acres we had last year. And so that's why I think we're going to see some pretty, pretty large shifts to soybeans, particularly in the Western Corn Belt. Yeah, good point. Well, that wraps up our discussion for this week. So I encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag Podcast with your friends and colleagues. On behalf of my colleagues, Nathan Thompson and Michael Langemeyer and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minnert. Our next Crop Outlook webinar will be on January 13th following USDA's January WASDE update. Thanks for listening.